0: In this episode, we're talking with property valuer Will Phillips. He's going to share some of the findings from his recent research into the impact of first home buyer incentives on property prices. Do they really help people get into the market, or are they instead making homes less affordable? And what about when governments get involved in lending to first home buyers? Where does the money come from, and who is really benefiting?
1: Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready, and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates,
2: mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Award. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional.
0: Our guest today is Will Phillips. Will is a listener who has reached out to us with some very interesting research he's been doing. He's a registered value and he's been such for over a decade, working across the country, starting in Brisbane, then Dubbo, Canberra, Roma, Emerald, Gladstone, Perth. And now living in Bunbury, WA, he's just completed a Master of Economics with a 20,000 word dissertation being called The Impact of Government Incentives and Low Deposit Home Loans on the Perth Property Market. This research took him over 18 months to write and we're pretty excited that he's sharing his findings with us today. Thank you so much for reaching out, Will, and for being a listener too.
3: Hi, no, no problem. Thanks for having me. It's, um, yeah, it's good to be here. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Looking forward to the chat, Will. Um Sometimes before we do the podcast, we get into some meaty chat prior to starting and uh, we had to sort of stop you there. I mean, just, uh, I mean, it'd be interesting to know why you, I guess, did this research and what your thoughts were prior to doing it. You know, like we've got a view of the world or our hypothesis that we do before we start. And, you know, and what sort
3: of did you learn through the process and was it what you expected the outcome to be? Yeah, so I started valuing in um, southeast Queensland um, back at the start of the last decade, sort of around 2010 to 2011. Um, and then, as Drey has sort of mentioned, moved around a little bit. So you sort of get a bit of an understanding on how different markets operate, what their drivers are, um, and you can sort of pick up anything fairly quickly that's a little bit out of the ordinary. And so when I moved over to WA uh, at the start of 2021, uh, there were few things that I just really quickly sort of picked up uh, in terms of differences, particularly between Queensland and, and WA. Um, things like uh, rates of home ownership were quite a bit higher in WA, um, and in particular certain suburbs. Uh, and the cost of construction of a house at the time when I came over it was about 30% less than Um, what I was used to sort of seeing on housing construction contracts in in Queensland at the time. Uh, And so that sort of, yeah, prompted me to do a bit more of a a deeper dive into uh, what was sort of happening over here.
0: I'm actually gobsmacked because I've read through some of the stuff you sent us and I actually hadn't realised, I hadn't picked up on that cost of construction. Mm. Um, So it's an interesting one. But we need to tease a lot of this outright because... Obviously, there's some unique factors that are at play in the Perth market that don't operate elsewhere. But you've touched on higher rates of home ownership. I know that there are government incentives to assist first home buyers to get into the market. So I'm guessing that those incentives, and also there's there's like mortgage packages and all sorts of things, and and hopefully you can explain them all for us. I'm guessing. Those are in some to some degree responsible for this higher rate of home ownership and what is the difference?
3: Yeah, definitely, uh, definitely responsible. So in WA, they have a uh, loan deposit home loan scheme, which is fairly unique to WA. I think South Australia has something similar. Uh, but in WA, it's called Keystart and basically it has a 2% deposit requirement and there's a couple of other characteristics that uh, we need to satisfy in terms of income limits. Um, there's a purchase price limit, and it has to be an owner-occupied property as well. Um, and so the government has a $10,000 time homeowners grant, which around 2013, 2014, they um, changed from being able to be used to purchasing of established properties to only being able to be used to construct a new dwelling. Um, and this $10,000 deposit can be utilized for um, the 2% deposit for the um, low deposit home loan.
0: Which just so that basically means, if I, if I got you right, that a first home buyer, as long as they qualify, you know, with the under the income threshold, buying the type of property that obviously brand new under a certain price point, and they've also got the income to sustain a mortgage. That they could actually buy a brand new house for without any savings, perhaps. Right. Okay. Uh, so that so, make it easier to get in the market, obviously. <laughs> so.
3: And and so the, the key um, here from sort of twenty fourteen onwards was that the homeowner grant was increased from seven thousand to ten thousand dollars. And the purchase price limit was uh, $480,000. So 2% of that is $9,600. So effectively, your $10,000 um, first homeowner grant. Completely covered us. So you're 10 percent deposit, And you've got full cash in the back pocket as well.
0: So why what, what yeah. construction costs us so much cheaper? Mm. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well,
3: that, that's sort of um, as a result of what's happened over the past sort of decade with housing construction. And there was a pretty straight oversupply of new housing that came on the market after the 40, 15 mining downturn. And the construction industry contracted quite significantly in that time. Went from I think, a nearly 25,000 completions in 2015, down to about 10,000 completions sort of twenty nineteen twenty twenty, 2020. And so as a construction industry was contracting obviously they were yeah needing to compete against each other to to win uh, uh the opportunity to build new homes and yeah in doing so getting down in price.
2: As a, and and but you know materials and the labor i mean that see were they like not making profit on these numbers i mean or was it you know like was it was, was there many established players left or was it just the big end of town like 30 is a big gap right like to mm. The thing that you can build a house 30% cheaper, but if it was 30% more expensive, it would be under, over these sort of thresholds probably, right? So they wouldn't get work. So do you think that the threshold meant that they had to go under these limits to be able
3: to sell stuff? Uh, So there's a few elements to that question. Um, (laughs) And I see in a downturn when there's lots of labor uh, around and materials are a bit cheaper, um, things just you know drop in price basically and yeah. you know there's a few reasons i guess for that um like if you talk to any bricklayers uh, um that have been you know in industry for the last uh, ten, 10 odd years um uh, you know they'll tell you that between 2017 and sort of 2020 they were you know barely making any money um and then that the, you know the price that bricks for, Uh, Laid over the last couple of years is just yeah gone up exponentially, sort of thing. Uh, And so, (coughs) what? Yeah, what was the second part to that question? Well, I mean, it just just
2: seemed a big gap. I was just wondering if there's you know any other government incentive or anything that was you know like try to keep the number of the sale price under these limits, right? Because they want to create a mini construction boom. Were they doing anything else? Were they you know zoning? Were they making that a bit cheaper or development fees? Were they like, you know, taking any hits or giving any incentives any other ways to the developer or to a builder or?
3: Um, to be honest, I think it was really just demand and supply. Um, and that was just, you know, the margins I were, yeah, I thin, in. And you, you were left with really just the, the big established builders that had scale. Um, and yeah, I've read a. Um, A government report from around, I think it was around 2012, uh, sort of runs through how many builders um, there are in WA compared with the eastern states, and it's a significantly smaller uh, number of established building companies, and they are quite a bit larger, so they have that efficiency in scale.
0: So when you've been doing this research, um, Perth is... uh, You know, it's a long way away from the rest of the country (laughs) and we've known that there's been, uh, you know, a good decade of really uh, depressed property price growth and a lot of that in large part was because of the end of the mining boom. And how have you been able to separate or tease out those sort of macro uh, environmental factors that impact the property market from the impacts of the first-home buyer grants and the you know low-deposit loan schemes and things like that. How have you, in your methodology, been able to tease those two things apart so that what your findings are, which I'm, I know you're going to get to shortly, you can be confident that it really is the incentives that has had the impact?
3: Uh, the way that I sort of identified that was that Housing construction in WA didn't really start to ramp up until 2014, um, which was the beginning of the downturn. And at that point, that's when uh, the mining industry started to free up a lot of labour and the housing construction industry was able to really sort of get going, uh, m- much in the same way as in Brisbane with the unit construction boom. A lot of that labour came from the mining uh, industry in Queensland. And sort of transitioned across to that uh, residential construction of uh, units. And so, yeah, it's just a similar story in in WA, um, yet yeah, where all that labour was freed up. And that's when you really start to see, uh, well, construction to really get going.
0: So uh, what you're saying, um, if I'm putting words in your mouth here, is that as the mining boom ended, the government looked at ways to get more people into housing and continue to, I guess, create a, an economy which provided employment to people who potentially were displaced by one industry's downturn. Is that what you're talking about? You're basically saying that the government then turned to construction to say, right, well, let, we need to bolster up and get activity going. How are we going to stimulate this side of the market?
3: Um, because, yeah, I wasn't in WA at the time, so I can't really comment on um, yeah the policy decisions around that. But having lived in Brisbane, when the unit construction boom was on, I know that that was a, a bit of a, a mandate. Um, they did a lot of research to try and incentivize developers to build a lot of those high-rise units in, um, in, the, in the middle of the city there. Um, but yeah, as far as Western Australia goes, the, the timing of the changes to some of the incentives um, and the, the scheme itself were sort of around that period. But I would only be speculating to, to how yeah. changes were made yeah.
1: at that time. So is the home
2: ownership rate you said in Perth, what is that <laughs> in terms of versus the uh you know other states?
3: Uh the twenty twenty one census it in it was around forty one percent of uh homes owned with a mortgage. Um, in terms of and so that's sort of been more of a focus to me as opposed to total ownership, which yeah. is yeah, inclusive out outline. Um, it's a bit more of the mortgage, I So yeah, it's was at forty-one percent, whereas um the, the average for Australia is somewhere in the mid low thirties. And and you think that based that's
2: would then encourage you to do your research to basically show that, you know, this key start uh, policy pushed a lot of people into home ownership, which I'm not saying that's good or bad, but this is just you thinking this is why it's much higher than the other state. But these are these are uh, Grouped together right this is a glut of people with higher mortgages um that are building these buying these new properties and they've got to be pretty cheap right like in terms of the build cost and the land to get under five hundred thousand. like they've got to be small blocks and small builds right um is that sort of what your takeaway is that you've then got these glut of suburbs that have high you know debt to equity and huge portion of mortgages
3: yeah, so you still have your established inner ring suburbs where it really still is, you know, down to fifteen or twenty percent rates of homes over the mortgage. Uh and you know, quite quite a few around that sort of mid to late thirties as well. Uh and so yeah, you know, I, I advised every suburb in Greater Perth just to see, you know, where the higher rates actually were. And yeah, it's in the, the gross corridors, um, typically those master planned the statics, um, that are sort of you know thirty Forty kilometres uh, out of the city,
0: and so what are you? What I guess, what conclusions have you come to? Is this good for Perth residents that they are able to get into housing um, a lot easier than elsewhere in the country? I mean, obviously with cheaper prices, you would expect that's the case as well. But obviously with the government lowering the barrier to entry, is that a good thing? Has that meant that there's you know more stability and and people are actually um, more secure financially, or is it actually, uh, uh, is it, uh, I guess, exposing a whole segment of homeowners to quite a dangerous situation? I'm not quite sure how we should interpret this.
3: Yeah, and I'm sort of um, denied with it myself. And you know, I try not to I try not to sit on the fence because typically as, as valuers and, and analysts, we're uh, providers, you know, a story and a report uh, as opposed to providing an opinion. Uh, yeah. I think that there's, there's an element, certainly, that um, providing people with an opportunity to uh, have home ownership is definitely a good thing because it does provide that stability. Um, there's also the other side of the coin with W8 being at a commodity based uh, economy where. up to sort of 45 and even 50% of the economic output does come from the mining sector. Um, You do need an element of labour mobility to be able to bring in uh, workers when there's a bit of a a mining room on. uh, And then if things do start to sort of crawl off, they might sort of move around to to other locations around the country where that labour is then required. Um, So that's sort of the, the two sides of that coin. Really, but it does read in uh, a few other um, things as well. In terms of because the properties can only be owner-occupied, um, you can't sort of if if you're at a point where you want to you know relocate into state and retain that property, I don't know, but you don't have a deal five percent or twenty to, to transition across to another lender. You then yeah, you may need to sell it and and realise a loss or. Uh, potentially, you sort of do need to hang on to it if there is a negative equity um, stakes in it. Is that your experience? So, so Perth had some um,
2: some pretty big numbers showing at a city level, and then when you go into you know some suburbs and then types of properties, some growth would be quite serious. You know, some quite significant growth in the last two years. What's your take on a lot of these suburbs that you analysed that have you know have used KeyStart that are under this have purchased under this five hundred limit and likely they've gone in there with, you know, 100% loans because they're probably, well, it's called 98 pretty much 100%, right? Um, what, and are you, have you said they had significant growth? So have they have they done really well financially
3: or is there negative equity? So, or what's, what's the issue? So one of the uh, analysis that I undertook and um, I'll refer to um, some suburbs in Queensland because I know that market fairly well. I use that as a bit of a basis of comparison, um, so yeah. I, I analysed um, some suburbs in the city of Swan LGA, which is the north uh, east growth corridor of Perth, uh, and I compared them with five um, suburbs based in southeast Queensland around the Springfield area because um, yeah. they're they both sort of similar distances from the city, similar to uh, levels of growth in terms of well area population and. When comparing the two, though, the five suburbs in southeast Queensland had pretty standard or closer to the average rate with homes owned than a mortgage, compared with the ones in the LGA, City of Swan. And what I found was the additional demand uh, when the incentives were changed for the first homeowners around 2014 15, the relationship between the price of new dwellings and the price of uh, the... The most likely substitute being a dwelling that's aged one to five years old, actually inverted, whereby the the cost of construction of a new dwelling became more expensive than purchasing a house that had been recently completed, and. Most people, you know, you might sort of think, well, a brand new house should be more expensive. But what you've got to consider is that you've also got rental accommodation costs to the period of construction. Uh, you might need to start paying interest on your line as people come down through that construction period as well. And so when I did this same analysis uh, to the suburbs in southeast Queensland, you find that that relationship between established houses and new dwelling construction costs is actually the established houses are, are more expensive. And so, what that basically means is that once you construct a new house in, in um, WA, because the there's a premium for new dwelling construction, you're instantly in a position where the day you walk through the front door, your house is worth less than uh, what do it cost you to build
0: it. So, I'm gathering from that, sort of joining the dots, that by incentivizing. So you're you're drawing a connection between the incentives effectively propping up the prices of new, which is what we would expect, but so you're actually saying that you've you've got evidence now that this is actually what happens that the new is bolstered by the fact that there are incentives encouraging people into that segment of the market. Because the thing is that if you've got people that can buy brand new with zero savings, um, but they're locked out of the established market, so the established market doesn't have access to that buyer pool, then it sort of stands to reason that the established market would suffer somewhat because it doesn't have those buyers competing for it. Does that make sense? Is that something that you would, you've would found? And uh,
3: the f- result of that to a degree is because of the way that, in the, you're right, the incentives are... Uh, set up so the ten thousand dollar has to be used for the construction of a new dwelling. Um, there was a three thousand dollar grant for purchasing of, the, of the, an established dwelling, but that was taken away in around that same sort of period. Um, and there's a statutory concession as well, but and around that that same, similar sort of period that was uh, reduced from five hundred thousand to four hundred thirty thousand so if you're purchasing an established property, and then it's a bit of a sliding scale. Uh, going up to 430. So, you still do get a bit of a concession. Whereas, if you're constructing a new house, the step duty in section uh, flies to anything on land up to 300000 So, you can get a lot closer to that $480,000 purchase price limit uh, by building a new house than you can by purchasing an established house, even without the $10,000 grant. Yeah. Uh, and so, I did do a bit of analysis just on, um, sale price bands and yeah you do say it's it's not statistically significant but you know, it does show a bit of a trend in terms of you know properties that sell just below that $430,000 price point for established where you can see that people are really try to um make use of that state duty conception yeah. and then uh in terms of the the dwellings the the volume of well, it's constructed it, but once you get that to a purchase price limit, that the volume really drops away. And so see with this recent boom though,
2: has those suburbs gone up or, or are they now still in negative equity? Because you can already imagine, okay, so they've they've moved in, they paid four hundred and eighty thousand. You're just saying that uh as soon as they moved in it's not worth four eighty, it's worth maybe closer to four thirty, um, because it's established property now. Um and there was stamp duty concessions up to that and um if your target's market's first-time buyers, a lot of them looking for those sort of concessions. And there's always a pre... If people do want new over over old, you know, it's like, why would you want a one-year-old place when you could buy a new one for the same price if you've got rental accommodation? Um, and, you know, everything's fresh, the paint's fresh, et cetera. Um, and that's one of the challenges with estates. There's always a newer estate just down the road, like there's... Uh, and and that, that buyer's always got the choice of one-year-old or 3 years or brand-new. Um but now, then you fast forward three years. Uh, are these suburbs really still struggling? Like, uh, you know, where, the, yeah, they thought they got home ownership, but what they really got was an asset that didn't go up in value that was actually quite risky. They haven't really saved money on renting because their mortgage rates have gone up. Um, and so, what have they really got out of this? Yes, they're homeowners, but are they stuck? Are they actually mortgage prisoners now? Um, and they've seen very little growth or, or, or have they gone up? I don't know. Like, because the construction costs have gone up and, um you know they actually were just that that construction cost benefit is really now factored into higher prices so they've made money not because of good assets just because construction costs have gone up and they bought at the right time
3: yeah so i guess that really comes down to an individual um level in terms of when they bought what they bought what they paid and those sorts of things um, I did do an analysis on the negative equity, equity positions of participants and, yeah, you know, assumed a, a starting cost as a third, you know, maximum purchase price of $480 um, and then had a, an established well the value of the property on completion um, and used the average median price of the, the suburbs over the period following that uh, through the downturn and to sort of track the payments, um, the repayments on the loan, and also to track the median sale uh, prices of that area. Um, and it did result in, yeah, that position of negative equity to, for quite a few years. Um, and then it sort of, I think, turned around from memory, maybe uh, around 2020, 2021. There was sort of enough growth where they paid off enough, and the growth started turned around. Um, to put them back into that position of of negative equity. Um, And I also did that analysis as well with a 5% deposit just to see what the difference was. And with the 5% deposit, uh, you sort of dip in and out of negative and positive equity um, quite a number of times over that same period. And I think, you know, the first time was within a couple of years as opposed to having to wait four or five years to get back to that positive equity position. Yeah, okay,
2: yeah. So, so, it's a long time, right? So, that person uh, did enter. They they sort of fell for the incentive. Um, they got into a, a mortgage, but for five years, they they sort of realized that this hasn't gone up in value. And if they did sell in that period, some people would have lost money. So, potentially, you would see people who've, who've got under, right? Because if they sold it, they had a mortgage at 98% uh, on 480. So, let's say 470 mortgage, and they sold it for 450. Less costs. Did they have to fund that money? Like is there any story there where you saw a lot of people who did have to move because they could only kick Keystart if they stayed in it, right? So if they had to move to Brisbane for work, they had to sell it. Did is there a like a story on the ground where people had to well basically walked away and lost more well, went bankrupt or went under? Like what's the situation?
3: Yeah, it just wasn't um, over here through that period. I can't really sort of comment, but from um what I've heard, either anecdotally or through reading different news articles and, and through the media, I think GSTART did generally try to work with the participants of the scheme to try and come to a resolution with them. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know exactly what those resolutions were, and, and I probably don't want to speculate um, in case that I am wrong, but I know G GSTART really does try and work with its participants. Um yeah, I know on the outcome that, yeah, you know, it works for parties involved.
0: One of, one of the findings that you um, have listed through on, in a sort of a summary um, that we got from you was that suburbs with higher rates of homes owned with a mortgage appear to have higher rates of long-term unemployment. Now, that's a really interesting is that correlation causation. What do you think is going on there? And do you think that is unique to Perth?
3: Um so yeah, I'm not a really a social or demographic economist. I'm more sort of property related. So in terms of that data, really what I was looking at was the high rate i over the mortgage suburbs and the unemployment rates in just comparing the twenty eleven census with the twenty twenty one census data. Um and um, it did indicate that the higher rates of home, uh, owned with the mortgage suburbs did actually have higher rates of unemployment in 2021, even in some cases, and not all, um, than they did in 2011. Whereas if you look at those suburbs, the more established suburbs with the, the rates of homes owned with the mortgage, you know, closer to the average, you're down in the 20%. Um, in a lot of cases, the, the rate of unemployment actually decreased between 2011 and 2021. Um, but yeah, as I said, I'm not a social or demographic economist, so somewhere else you need to pick up that research and do it with a bit more confidence.
0: It's quite fascinating though, because where my mind goes when when sort of I read those sort of findings is I think about you know the GFC in America, you know how it hit the um the property market over there was so smashed because of effectively low doc loans and you're able to hand the keys back if you can't pay the mortgage and people who didn't have jobs were able to get get mortgages, et cetera, et cetera. And I know that even with uh, this situation, which is helping people get into the property market, it's not saying if you don't have a job, you can get a mortgage. I know that it's a completely different banking system. However, there is something to be said for a barrier to entry, right? Now we talk about affordability we we talk about the our social problems in this country about people not being able to afford to get into the housing market and what that means but the problem is that once you get into the housing market there you have an obligation to continue paying your mortgage etc etc so there's, there's and then if you can't get out of that property safely and securely yes you, you you face with negative equity and the problem we're trying to sell the loss and all of those sorts of things right so i Uh, you know so where my mind goes and i know that you just said you're not a social so you're not a um that type of economist but like doesn't don't you get curious about why do does your mind go to a couple of theories and a couple of of scenarios as to what potentially could be the the cause of this or what's going on or are you quite happy just to find the findings and then move on and see what else you can uncover
3: Uh, I did read a few um, peer-reviewed journal articles that do suggest that homeowner's shift and reductions in labour mobility could lead to um, long-term unemployment uh, rates increasing. Um, So that was sort of where the basis of that um, finding came from. Um, But, yeah, it's it's really hard to to know exactly what, what the cause of was, whether it was just a structural change um, in employment because of, you know, people in that area were employed in a certain industry that, you know, is no longer existing. And, you know, to be because of that and nothing to do with the rates of, of homes with the mortgage. Um, so there's really, yeah, more, more research that needs to be done to be confident with that.
0: Yeah, so potentially that they had less ties to an area, whereas in a more established area, people have got more ties, they've been there a lot longer, they might found employment after living in the area as opposed to um, moving to an area because they found employment. You know what I mean? That's sort of that order in which people might do that. If you And I often, it often concerns me, the worst-case scenario of this is, is really or example of this is a mining town where people are moved to a mining town because that's where their job is and then they are left, right? For it's left investors devastated but owner-occupiers would have been I imagine as well if they'd gone and actually bought into some of those towns that where the mines shut for argument's sake so that's at one extreme so so potentially are you suggesting that these these articles that you've read and I know we go down an area it's not your research but I just think that the story is bigger than just simply looking at the data like you say if you don't really know the reason I'm looking at what can we, What other questions can we ask of this?
3: So the, the first thing that I'll probably touch on is um, Queensland is a commodity-based economy as well. Uh, it's more diversified in um, where its economic output does come from. Uh, I don't have such a power lines on mining. But one of the other key differences between Queensland and WA is that Queensland has a lot of um, cities or towns outside of Brisbane, Um, and so a lot of the the population lives outside of Brisbane. So when they go through a bit of a mining boom, and uh, a lot of the the workers to actually locate themselves in, you know, Emerald, Gladstone, Rockhampton, Mackay, Townsville, Cairns, um, there's quite a few cities around a place other than Brisbane. Whereas in WA, um, outside of Perth, you've sort of got Geraldton and, um, and and Bunbury, Bustleton down south, but, um, and and a few sort of towns down to the Albany. Um, but you really don't have that population density outside of Perth. Um, so when people do come over, it does put a bit pressure onto the uh, capital city market uh, than it does, say, for in, in Brisbane, where Queensland is going through a bit of a mining burn. Um, and you start vacancy uh, rates and the population data so interstate migration definitely went into deficit following the mining downturn 3 4 and 16 but if you look at the WA population as a whole it actually never decreases over that period it still sort of maintains and increases through international migration um, and natural increases through things like earth um and where the vacancy rates uh, actually came from is with all the labor being released from the see until 2014-16 um you really see a huge spike in dwelling construction and i really feel that the vacancy rate is actually as a result of building too many dwellings too quickly um and so you see, after the buying downturn, the, the vacancy rate in this area starts to approach 3%, which is what we've got to consider a balanced market, where rent the stay certainly fairly stagnant, might increase a little bit. Um, and again, going back and sort of looking at the, the southeast Queensland suburbs, uh, once that vacancy rate sort of approaches and um, goes 3%, 3% up towards 4%, it then sort of buy rates, um, and then comes back down again. Um, as new dwelling supply sort of pulls back a little bit. And then once it falls below three percent, um, yeah, but the asking rent start to increase and investors start to uh, re-enter the market and build some new houses um, and at occupiers, they decide, well, rent can just up in price, let's house now. So you get that natural increase in supply. Um, whereas over the year, when you remove the investor element um, from the market. And you would long thought about areas to rate. Well, investors that occupies buy or build properties for uh, totally different reasons. Uh, investors build, you know, pretty much based on quantitative CDs. You know, asking rent rental yields, uh, capacity to to carry gearing, tax deductions, uh, all those factors, and then looking at vacancy rates, uh, infrastructure spending in the area. Uh, it's, a, it's a really paralyzed decision where the for owner occupiers. They go, Well, we just want a backyard. It was like a patio. So we can have some barbecue. you got friends around the corner. We uh, want to put our kids in that school. Let's build a house here. And, um, and so what we saw was as vacancy rates went through to that 3% um, over here in WA, removing the investors from that market and having the supply driven by owner occupiers. Meant that it didn't really have that self-regulation uh, ability to it, and so for a period of about, I think it was about two and a half years, the vacancy rate just continued to climb, um, and it went three percent, four percent, five, all the way up to seven and a half percent in these suburbs um, that I've still looked at in the, the northeast corridor, which really is getting to the point where owner-occupiers have to go you know, got rents a house for, you know, basically nothing. Um, it actually makes no sense to build another one. Um, but it's not until you get to that extreme level of the supply um, that you reach that point where that sort of starts to happen.
1: I'm on a personal mission to help more people make better property decisions. And you can find out all about what I'm working on at veronicamorgan.com.au. And there you'll find resources for first home buyers, details about my Buyer's Agent Mentoring Program, access to suburb help for investors, or if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs, or lower north shore, you can connect with my team at Good Deeds Property Buyers.
2: If you're thinking about buying your first home, upgrading to a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, we would love to carefully guide you through this journey and importantly, get the finance right. Please reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au.
1: Don't forget that you can download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? The Elephant in the room, What are your
0: thoughts on the current, um, I guess, popularity of perth for investors because obviously things have changed you know the vacancy rate it's not, not like it was so there's obviously opportunity to rent properties out there um at the moment there's we're seeing some movement on prices i mean i'm talking broadly here um so therefore people are starting to see that there's some some potentially some gains to be made so what are your thoughts about that chat that shift in in investor sentiment with regards to Perth at the moment
3: so one of the things that I tracked as well was uh, the share of WA's new investor activity for housing and the percentage difference between the Perth median house price and the Sydney median house price, um, and I've the, uh, onto a, a graph and. What you can see is when the WA share of new investor activity starts to increase, um, and it's a long-term average, around 10%, and this is ABS data, Um, the percentage difference between the median house prices, of course, and and, and Sydney starts to decrease all the way up to um, 2006, 2007, when uh, the percentage of new investor activity in Western Australia was 21%. Uh, as a share of all of Australia, which is twice the long-term average, and the difference between the median house price in Perth and Sydney got down to one percent, um, and it's sort of settled a bit below twenty, but still long above the long-term average for quite a period of time through to the second mining boom, um, and then following that, once they had the extreme sort of oversupply of dwellings. Uh, it dropped to as low as sort of 3 to 4% uh, as a share of new investor growing uh, housing activity, um, and so that over the past sort of a few years, I think 2019 is when it actually troughed um, out at its lowest rate, and the difference between the person, Sydney median house price um, was about 60%, and, and so it started to trend back down again. Um, and over the last calendar year, 2023, the share has increased from 7% to 9%. Uh, so we're definitely starting to see um, investors uh, re enter the market and track back up towards that long term average of 10%. Yeah. And did you, uh,
2: you know, I know you're meant to do an opinion as the value of it, you know, on a podcast, you know, nothing to do where you work or, you know, your opinion only. I mean, what have you learned around? What assets perform well? Where the risk lies? The risk of return where you know it doesn't really exist. You know it's not really worth the risk for the return. Like if you're investing your own money, like what are the rules that you sort of live by, and what's your property philosophy?
3: Uh, so uh, before I left Brisbane uh, back in 2017, I actually spent a bit of time working as a buyer's agent. Um, and lot at you know, sort of really good baseline uh, information. And I actually wrote uh, a couple of pages um, just hidden in Word. And whenever a friend asks me, you know, for some advice on, on buying a property, I send them that first. Um, and it's all stuff like, you know, buy on the side of the street, buy West Sace you know, I said, Steve renovated, you know, you went to a in for a couple of years. Don't buy a T intersection because you get headlights in your front window. Like just all of these basic sort of things that just elevate a property um, from that, you know, even a B or a B plus up into that sort of A grade level. Um, but one of the things that we uh, I learned that while I was there was that it actually you it didn't really um, mind in terms of what the buyer profile was, whether they were an investor or an occupier. We were just trying to buy them on our owner-occupier property. Um, and so the briefs might be different. You know, the owner-occupier, they might have the, you know, we want to have a backyard and a covered decks of barbecues and live across from a park. And the investor, they might be, well, you know, this is our budget, our, this is um, our, our borrowing capacity and our ability to carry deer in. And, you know, that might be the same property to fit right for those briefs. Um, but other times it's it sort of made, but as well. So I guess my philosophy is whether you're sort of looking to, to purchase a, an investment property or an owner occupier property, because such a substantial portion of the market is owner occupiers, um, up around sixty you percent know, when you include uh, owner with a mortgage, home outright. That's where you're probably going to get most of your capital growth, because that's going to be who the biggest proportion of people looking to purchase your property um, when it's time to sell. So if you get appeal to that market segment, you've got a better opportunity to find a buyer or a couple of buyers that might even
0: compete against each other. I mean, that's obviously very much in, in line with with our philosophy as well. It's owner-occupiers that drive up prices. There's owner-occupied demand, I should say, that drives up prices. But um, the thing going back to Perth, though, I mean, the problem with that, in in that market is that you've got owner occupiers incentivized to buy something that not isn't necessarily going to translate to have that same um that same owner occupier appeal on the resale so is there something that you sort of applying what you learned when you were working in southeast Queensland versus what you are observing now that you're living over on the west coast it, it is there a different dynamic at play there in terms of that you know that Focus on the owner occupier appeal. Is there, is there two different types of owner occupiers? I think
3: the the activity that we've probably seen from East Coast buyers over here at the moment has been for established properties. Um, and when you sort of live over here for a period of time or, or work in property, you can work out the age of property or something that's been built in the last sort of twenty years very quickly uh because it's either a bit of a downturn and it's you know it's quite large in scale it's got multiple living areas it's um you know wealthed it out with you know ducted air high ceilings stone tops because if the downturn you know the is a bit cheaper the materials are a bit cheaper or if they built you burden where you know the floor areas are a little bit smaller might be by living space uh or standard high ceilings uh, and those sorts of things and i think owner occupiers typically, they are looking to the multiple living areas um, and, and try to tick all those you know, higher-end features, um, whereas I guess for investors, particularly East Coast investors that um, haven't been over here to see the market, but potentially don't understand the differences um, and had maybe a buying purely based on numbers game in terms of rental deal. May not understand uh, those variables, and so when you're pricing the value of a house purely on its rentable yield, um, there's potential there that you may be actually overpricing the property. Um, and when we, I'm not going to say when, but you know, should should WA uh, cool off a little bit, and and you would have then try and sell that property and sell it back into the owner occupier market you might find that um, you, you might have paid a little bit of a premium um, because the basis that you bought for is now not the basis that the next buyer is looking to purchase it, based on. Yeah. So I, mean, I guess you're highlighting
2: a bit of a risk of, you know, buying from afar and not then, you know, understanding the difference in build quality. You know, you're basically just looking at the suburb medium and going, oh, you know, we're not comparing the floor plans and all the features and, you know, the better streets to the worst streets. I mean, you did rattle off a whole list of small one percenters. I would call it. But, you know, those 1%ers add up, right? Don't buy on the T C set You buy with a better aspect. You buy on the, the right side of the road. You buy something with, you know, a slightly bigger block or the houses in the right part of the block. Like, you know, and then when you try to sell it in a, in a hot market, yeah, okay, maybe there's not much gap in those prices, right? Um, because buyers are just desperate and they're willing to make all those compromises. But you're right, when that market cools off at some point, um, if you do need to sell in that market, that that those one is add up. So, oh, I'd love it, but I just, just I think I'll just be a bit patient. I think I'll just sit on the sidelines for a bit longer because, you know, it's just a bit weird the floor plan, and I think I'll find something that better suits. Um, and so, is that what you're sort of suggesting here? Is that the investors come over to Perth? Oh, okay, it's got a great yield. It's five hundred dollars a week, and it's six hundred thousand. It's how amazing is it? But they're not factoring in all those other things that they're missing just because they're buying in a bit of a mini boom based on you?
3: I, yeah, I think unless you, you're a local or you're using a local age it wouldn't matter where you are buying, whether it was Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, um, you know, Breaker Hill, you know, wherever, um, there's going to be nuances that you just cannot know unless you, you are local to that market. Yeah.
0: Uh, we are definitely, you know, on board with you on that one. And one of the things that you said that was really just piqued my interest was that about the you know, in a downturn, the build quality is better. You got more house is being built to attract buyers, I presume. Um, and also, as you said, I think you know, labour is perhaps cheaper and, and maybe materials are cheaper, so therefore they can. Whereas in a in a hotter market, um, in an upturn, there's more. I guess you got more buyers around, so therefore they're not as fussy, and so therefore you can build smaller houses and potentially with lesser materials or less of finishers. Have I got that right? Because in a way that's an extrapolation of what we talk about with, you know, the buyers becoming very fussy in a slow market. You know, those one percenters count because buyers have choice. You know, I'm not going to go for the house on the T intersection or on a main road in a slow market because I don't have to. Whereas when FOMO is driving the market, when there's lots and lots of activity and when prices are rising rapidly, buyers will compromise on all sorts of things to get into the market. So you sort of apply that same sort of logic in the in the, in the build side of things, which I've never thought of in that, that way, uh, which I think that's quite interesting. And once again, that's one of those local knowledge things that we're I'd never really think of that. Now, and I'm sure most other East Coasters wouldn't think of that when they're looking in, in at buying in Perth.
3: Yeah, it, it really compresses the market from the top to the bottom and you don't sort of have the premiums between the, the A and B great properties. And so you probably don't sort of realise uh, I guess what it does turn into uh, a, a buyers market that that premium between your property and and the A grade property would actually decompress mm. a bit larger.
0: Yeah, no, we see it all the time. But yeah, I hadn't thought of it in terms of actually as things are being built. Do you? Um. Well, it's been a very interesting conversation. We really appreciate. Yeah, you know, you as I said, as a listener, reaching out to us and saying, look, you know, you've done this research. It certainly piqued our interest. Um, do you have an example of a property Dumbo you're going to share with us?
3: Yeah, sort of uh, ummed and on with this one and I yeah, didn't want to draw anyone under the bus or implicate um, anyone too much. But I've got a the member and an um, um, older couple and uh, he, he's a builder, a master builder, does you know, fantastic work. Uh, but he decided he wanted to close a balcony, which you know, looks great, extended the living area, and he probably gets where this is going, um, and, and put in a second bathroom into the house as well. Um, and he start, he has done a fantastic job, it looks really great. And uh, they went to sell that property just recently, put it on the market, um, didn't have it signed off um, their final certificates, found a buyer who. Um, signed the contract and then yeah found out that it wasn't signed off didn't have the final approvals wait to go through that process really struggled to find a certified sale ended up falling over and that was about a year and a half ago still hasn't sold. ouch
2: yeah yep. okay yeah so i mean that's just that's one of those things we we're just talking about in a hot market right uh hot market the buyer just takes it on the chin and says look Exactly. I, I bet better, I'm better to be in otherwise I'll just sort that out myself and I'll pass the buck down the road one day in 10 years time when I sell it but in a slow market you know people just pull out right when there's a and they, they worry there's going to be more things right that's the issue there's the, or what else isn't you know signed off you know what what does this mean the uncertainty of that just really uh turns people away so what should they have done
3: I guess Have they just got approval for that and got it all certified properly. Yeah, you really need to tick that box right from the start. Um it just after the fact, you know, if you're getting a certifier out there, particularly if you're putting on an extension with say a concrete slab or or a deck with, you know, uh concrete footings, the certifier, how can they know how deep that concrete is and whether it's in the ground you know, to the to the required specifications. Um so it really does pay to do all that beforehand. Um, and even if you're all willing to accept it because maybe i would pick it up a little bit cheaper um you've potentially got risk there in terms of you know it's that deck sales or it's that wall that house falls over for one reason and it may not even be poor construction it's just a timber right out or something but then they're going to come back and you know after that certification um, document and you don't have it and you're potentially liable it's that's an investment property or you've got a bunch of friends up for arbitrage Right.
0: And possibly having difficulties insuring it as well. Um, you know, it 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 is as Chris said, it's something that in a hot market buyers will overlook. And I'm always astounded at that because I have been a sales agent. You know, that's when I learned about the folly of of trying to ask for uh was it ask for forgiveness, not approval, which is what we would try to do after the event. You know, the folly of that is that, yes, you you lose your opportunity to sell in any market conditions because that's when people get super picky about this sort of stuff. And I am never cease to be amazed at how in a hot market, people don't seem to care. And I'm thinking only you'd actually experience how difficult it can be to move a property that isn't properly approved in a slower market. You would not be so gung-ho about buying this one. Yeah,
3: absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Well, I'm sad to hear that your relative, the elder gentleman with the ma- who's the master builder, hasn't I <laughs> didn't know any better. I didn't actually know the order in which to get things done. Uh well, thank you again for reaching out to us. Um, and uh, you know, we wish you now that you've got your your masters, congratulations. And um are you gonna continue working as a value or have you got other plans?
3: Yeah, so the masters was actually a master of agriculture and resource economics. Um, and so the intention was to transition away from residential and move into agribusiness rural valuations which is what i've been doing for the past couple of years uh it just so happened that uh sort of fell into this research uh in moving over here and did my dissertation on a residential topic um but yeah certainly working in agribusiness valuations at the moment and um, planning on continuing down that path for some time
0: Excellent. Yes, good luck with your
1: your progression of your career. Thank
3: you. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thanks for the chat, Will.
1: If you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q and A episode, you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website theelephantintheroom.com.au, or you can email us directly at questions at the elephant in the If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.